So, we're in the midst of a series through the book of Acts. And we've now come to these last chapters in Acts, which really is just focusing on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And how God has chosen him to be a witness for him. And God even right up front said, but Paul, you're going to suffer many things for my name. Even when he first came to know God on the road to Damascus, he was under no illusions that this is the road God had chosen for him and he was going to be willing to follow that. And so we've seen how Paul got this great opportunity to basically witness and testify about Jesus Christ to crowds, throngs in Jerusalem at this time because they were all there for the feasts and festivals and Jerusalem was overflowing and the people were there and Yet it it didn't turn out really well. And because of that now, Paul's going to get an opportunity now in this chapter to speak to the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. The only thing I could compare it to in America today would be like you and I, just an ordinary person, gets an opportunity to stand up in front of Congress and speak about whatever we want to speak about. That's the opportunity that Paul had been given here. Now, before we get into this, because we're going to go rather speedily through these verses, because there's only a couple that I really want to focus on tonight and apply it to our walk with God. But but what I do want us to see before we even get into it is this. So Paul's been given this great opportunity to speak to leaders of his nation, Wow, what a great opportunity. And yet we're going to see that things didn't turn out probably the way Paul thought they would. Maybe things didn't turn out the way Paul would have liked them to. Maybe Paul even felt like he had failed in some way because things turned out so bad. And the reason I share that up front is because we can all relate with each of those. Throughout our life, even in attempting to serve God, we've all found ourselves in situations where we thought things were going to turn out this way, and they didn't. It was totally different. Or we, we thought, this is, this is how this is going to go down, and it didn't go down like that at all. And we may have even felt like, wow, I had such a great opportunity and it slipped through my fingers and I feel like I failed or I feel like a failure. And we may even at times like that question, well, what, what would God's response be to us at that moment? How, how would He react to us? I think we're going to see how the Lord Jesus would respond and react in some way by the way he responded to Paul after Paul had been given this great opportunity. Notice beginning in chapter 23, verse 1. So Paul again is standing before the leadership of Israel and he looks directly at the council. There's a confidence in Paul at this moment A confidence that only God can build into our lives. 
And he says, brothers, I have lived my life with a clear conscience before God to this day. He's not claiming to be sinless. He's not claiming to be perfect. But what he is saying is that I have been conscious of my conscience. He's saying that when my conscience did bother me, when it pricked me, when it convicted me, I responded to it and I tried to set things right. That's how we all should live. We all should be living that way. Whether it's responding to our conscience that way, whether it's responding to the Holy Spirit who lives within us that way, It's not that we're going to be perfect, but when the Holy Spirit or our conscience is revealing something to us, we should respond to it and be conscious and aware of our conscience and of the moving of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul's claiming. Now, obviously, because of the charges, the accusations that they've already leveled at Paul that we've talked about in the weeks before this, The high priest was offended. And notice at that time, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there judging me according to the law, and in violation of the law, you order me to be struck. Well, those standing near said to him, Do you dare insult or humiliate God's high priest? And Paul replied, I did not realize, brothers, that he was the high priest. And we don't know whether that was because as many conclude Paul had an eyesight problem and he literally couldn't see who said that. It's also very possible because Paul had not been in Jerusalem for 20 years and the high priesthood had been like a revolving door the last couple years that he really didn't even know who the high priest was. That this meeting was called so quickly, maybe the high priest did not even have his normal high priestly garments on so that he could be recognized. We don't know, but Paul honestly said, I didn't know that that was the high priest. So he says, Brothers, I did not know that he was the high priest, for it is written, you must not speak evil about a ruler of your people. He's not necessarily backing down in what he said, but he is showing that I need to respect the office. I might not respect the person, but I need to respect the office. The position. And that principle is there. Now, should Paul have said what he said? Even though it was true? It could have been maybe the reason why he lost some opportunity here. But it does show us something about Paul. He's human. Sometimes he opens up his mouth and maybe says things he shouldn't. Gee, join the club. We've all been there. We all sometimes let our emotion and our passion get the best of us, and I'm sure he did at this point. But I do want to go back to what Paul said because it's an important principle for all of us. When Paul calls the high priest, you whitewashed wall, he is reminding us of something, and that is basically the lack of character or integrity in this man. 
that there was an inferiority on the inside. That even though he looked good outwardly, there was much deficient on the inside. And it is a reminder of exactly why the religious leaders and the high priest and all of them had gotten to this point in their life. Because they had long ago started to focus on the physical and the external rather than focusing on the internal. And Jesus himself, when he was still here, called them to task on it. And used the very same word that Paul uses here to describe the high priest. So I want you to see this with me. So keep your finger in Acts 23 and go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. And again, what this reminds us of is simply this. God wants us to focus on the internal. If we focus on the internal, then the externals will take care of themselves. By the time Jesus got here, And even subsequently, Paul, after that, the religious leadership of Israel had been so permeated by focusing on the externals for so long that they let go of the internal, the really important stuff. And as I said, Paul called the high priest Ananias out on it, and Jesus earlier had called the leadership of Israel out on it as well. In Matthew 23, look at verse 25. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you look righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We all have to be careful that we don't get caught up in trying to present a good front on the outside, but we're letting things go on the inside. God is always about focusing on the internal stuff. The external stuff will take care of itself when our heart is right with God. Too often we even compensate When we know that there's a deficiency or lacking on the inside, we overcompensate with things on the outside. We begin to focus on the physical, the material, the external stuff because we're overcompensating for what we know is lacking on the inside. And we have to be careful of that. And that's a principle that Jesus called the religious leaders out on, and it's obviously something that Paul touched on here with Ananias the high priest. All right, back to Acts chapter 23. Then when Paul noticed, verse 6, that part of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he shouted out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Paul's just being wise here. He's understanding and noticing who his audience is. 
We all, when we're in conversations even with one other person, should strive to know who's our audience. How can we connect with them? How can we make inroads here? And Paul now obviously has taken a turn. He's insulted the high priest. And so we got to go another direction. And he's thinking on his feet. And he notices that these, uh, that this religious body is split between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And folks, most of the time, they were always fighting amongst each other and couldn't get anything done. The only time they ever came together to agree on anything was when they crucified Jesus. And now they're coming together once again because they also have a common enemy in Paul. But Paul now is wanting to use their theology, if you will, to begin to divide this council that he stands before. By the way, I want to point out that this word hope is a very important word that Paul uses. The hope of the resurrection. It means the trust, the confidence, the expectation of what is sure. That's hope in the Bible. That's biblical hope. It's not a hope so like we use in the English where it may happen, it may not. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's always with confident expectation and anticipation because it is hope based on the things that God has promised in his word and he cannot lie. Therefore, they are absolutely sure and trustworthy. It's why we have hope in our resurrection. I hope you have that hope tonight that if you were to die, You will live again. Hope. We live with hope. It's important for us to be thankful for the hope that we have as Christians. Whether we're talking about hope of our resurrection or hope of anything the Bible talks about. That there is a certainty. There is a surety in a world of uncertainty. And we talked about that Sunday. How so many things are uncertain and indefinite and we have no security or stability apart from God. But because God and His Word and His promises are so sure and so certain, that's how we can have security and stability in a world that lacks all of that. And so we should be thankful. When he said this, verse 7, an argument began between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, literally split into the factions. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angel or spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. They align with all of them. They endorse all of them. And this again just reminds us that it is important what we believe. Even though we live in a world today, even in Christianity, that, that you know, wants to say, oh, it doesn't really matter what we believe. Let's just get together and love God and love each other. It's always been important what we believe. Our doctrine is important. And that's why even back to tying this in with the messages we've been having on Sunday, it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. And we even see this in the book of Acts where Paul and others have had to defend their faith and what they believe before others. And the Bible talks to us and says, this is what we need to be ready to do. To set Jesus Christ apart as Lord in our lives and be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks us a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 Verse 9, there was a great commotion 
And some experts in the law from the party of the Pharisees stood up and protested strongly. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And when the argument became so great, the commanding officer feared that they would tear Paul to pieces. So he ordered the detachment to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks, this encampment of an army. Paul was in the midst of an army. Paul now was all alone. Paul was isolated. This opportunity that he had been given to speak before the council, the Sanhedrin of Israel, certainly didn't turn out very well. It didn't go the way he probably thought it would or would have hoped that it would. And as I said earlier, maybe Paul even felt like, man, I I wish I'd have had that to do over again. I feel like I didn't seize that opportunity. I, I feel like I failed. I don't know all that Paul obviously felt as he sat there all alone. But I love this. Notice how the Lord responds to Paul in verse 11. And by the way, if the Lord didn't think Paul needed this encouragement, if the Lord didn't think Paul needed this reassurance, then he wouldn't have done it. God doesn't waste things. God did this because he knew Paul needed this. And that should be an encouragement to us because sometimes, again, we put these Bible characters, even though they're human like us, on pedestals and we begin to think that they're almost not human. And even the great apostle Paul needed to have God come alongside of him and encourage him at this moment and reassure him. And notice what happens here in verse 11. And I really want to focus on this tonight because out of all the verses in this chapter, this is the one that God spoke to me more about than anything else. And this is the one that I think can apply to our lives more than anything else. Because I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know how you're feeling tonight. But here's what I do know. The Lord is standing near. Notice it says, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Have courage, for just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I want to break this down. Let's first start with the words, stood near Paul. These words mean to be at hand, to be present, to be close beside God is reminding Paul, I'm right here, Paul. I'm right here with you. Think about that. What difference would that make in our lives as Christians if we really believed that Jesus Christ was that close to us every day of our lives, every step of the day? I mean, if we could just reach over and just grab a hold of his hand, And hold on as we were going through the day. What difference would that make? And yet that's what our eyes of faith need to perceive. That Jesus really is close beside us. Present. Near us. At all times. We may not physically be able to see him here. But he's here. And then I want to go back. Who is it that's standing near Paul? 
It's the Lord. It is the ruler of the universe. The one who is before all things, who made all things, who sustains all things. It is the supreme master of the universe who's standing near, close beside of Paul. I mean, you and I as human beings can be encouraged even by another human being standing by us when we are going through something or having to face something. It's nice to know somebody's here. How about knowing the Lord is near? That His presence is here with us. And it wasn't that Jesus was just going to visit Paul and just give him his presence. He also wanted to speak a word of encouragement to Paul. He says, have courage. Again, if Paul didn't need to hear this, then Jesus would have never said it. These words mean to be bold, to be confident, to be unafraid, to be emboldened or bolstered from within by God. They are the same words that Jesus uses in John 16, 33. When he said to his followers, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble and suffering, but be of good cheer. Have courage. I have overcome the world. Same Greek words that Jesus uses here. See, our boldness, our confidence, our being unafraid, our courage can come not just by being reminded that the Lord is with us, but by allowing Him to embolden us and bolster us from within ourselves. And that's what Jesus was telling Paul. I think He was saying these things, not, or He said this, not just because of what Paul had just experienced. Things just didn't go really well when He spoke before the council. But Jesus knew what was also coming and what Paul was going to face even beyond this. And Paul needed a little reassurance. Because we're going to see in just a moment when we get there, the next day, 40 Jewish men are basically going to go on a hunger strike until they murder Paul. That's what Paul's going to face tomorrow. He didn't know it, but Jesus knew it. And that's why Jesus also comes to Paul and says, have courage. You are going to testify about me here. You're going to testify about me there. These 40 that are after you aren't going to touch you because I'm the Lord. I'm here with you. I will protect you, Paul. I will use other human beings, but I ultimately am the one looking out for you. The Lord is. I'm standing near you. And so he says, Just as you have been a witness or testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
It was a necessity established by God himself, and nothing was going to deter Paul getting to Rome. It could have been 400 men going on a hunger strike before they murdered Paul. It didn't matter. If that's what the Lord wanted, that's what the Lord was going to get. And Paul needed to be encouraged and emboldened by the word of God to him. God wants to use his word to give us courage so that we will live our life unafraid, with confidence, not in ourselves, but in him, the Lord who stands near. Keep your finger there in Acts, and let me take you to two other passages. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading at verse 16. At my first defense, no one appeared in my support, Paul said. Instead, they all deserted me. May they not be held accountable for it. But notice verse 17. The Lord stood by me. He was present. He was near. He was close beside. Same word that was used back in Acts. And not only was he close beside, but Paul said he also strengthened me. He empowered me. He enabled me. He made me strong. Literally, he filled me with his power. You see here the combination of God's presence and God's power in Paul's life. So that through me, the message would be fully proclaimed for all the Gentiles to hear. And so I was delivered from the lion's mouth. I hope you know and believe that the Lord stands beside of you and wants to strengthen you tonight. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how you're feeling. I don't know if things aren't turning out the way you thought they would in life and if you even feel like a failure. But I know this. The Lord wants to come alongside of you. He wants to remind you that He is near you, that He is with you, that His presence is there. And He wants to fill you with His power and make you strong because He's got more for you to do. And then the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Verse 5. This verse, at the beginning, ties into a lot of what we've been talking about in 1 Timothy, chapter 6, on Sundays. Your conduct must be free from the love of money, and you must be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never abandon you so that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I want to break this down for a moment. First of all, I will never leave you. The word means I will never fail to uphold you. By relaxing in any way. By neglecting you in any way. By letting go of you or giving up on you. That's what the word means. A lot of different shades of meaning 
in that one word, leave. And then he says, I will not abandon you. I will not desert you. I will not forsake you. I will not leave you behind or ever leave you helpless. That's what the word means. We live in a world of hopelessness and helplessness. A Christian should never feel hopeless and a Christian should never feel helpless because the Lord promised I will never abandon you. So that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. The one who brings help at the right time. Well, I should say the one who brings the right help at the right time. That's what the word helper here means. I will not be afraid. You can see how these verses in Hebrews and 2 Timothy 4 tie in with what Paul's experiencing here in Acts 23.11. And I hope for the rest of this week, if if not beyond, that maybe I could encourage you to to meditate and and remind yourself of Acts 23.11, of 2 Timothy chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 13, And just remind yourself of those truths the rest of this week. The Lord is near. He's telling us to have courage and not be afraid. So back to the rest of the chapter. Notice in verse 12 of Acts 23, when morning came, the Jews formed a conspiracy And bound themselves with a note not to eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. Pretty determined, huh? It's amazing how determined ungodly wicked people can be in their pursuits and how passive and complacent Christians can be in what's really important. Sometimes those who don't know God put us to shame. Because their commitment to what they believe, even though it's not true, is a greater devotion and greater commitment than what we have to what is true. But remember, God said, you're going to testify about me in Rome and I'm going to make sure that you do. And so notice something. Even though it may seem like, oh my goodness, from a human standpoint, Paul's at the mercy of all these crazy people and there's 40 people after him and they're going to kill him and all of this. I don't know what you're going through and what situations you may face, but we as Christians should never believe we are at the mercy of all these crazy people and our, you know, our unreasonable boss and, and this family member that's driving me crazy and all that. Because we're never that way. Because God is always over it all. And God is watching over each of us. He said, I'll not neglect you. I'll never relax in looking after you. We may sometimes conclude that God is far away and He doesn't care and He's not near, but that's not the truth of the Word of God. His eye is always on us. If His eye is always on the bird that falls from the tree, as Jesus said, And my father knows when a bird hits the ground, 
then the Father knows the minutest details of our life as well. And nothing escapes God's notice. So in verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves with a solemn oath not to partake of anything until we've killed Paul. So now you and the council request the commanding officer to bring him down to you, as if you were going to determine his case by conducting a more thorough inquiry. We are ready to kill him before he comes near this place. In other words, they're setting an ambush. They're making it look like we're just going to go through the proper channels of the law, but as he's coming down, we're going to kill him. Notice. God always has the right people in just the right place. And it just so happens that Paul's nephew just happened to hear what was going on. Do we think that was coincidence? No. God made sure that that young man was there. Verse 16, when the son of Paul's sister heard about the ambush, he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commanding officer, for he has something to report to him. So the centurion took him and brought him to the commanding officer and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commanding officer took him by the hand, withdrew privately and asked, what is it that you want to report to me? He replied, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as if they were going to inquire more thoroughly about him. But do not let them persuade you to do this because more than 40 of them are lying in ambush for him. They have bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink anything until they've killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for you to agree to their request. Then the commanding officer sent the young man away, directing him, tell no one that you have reported these things to me. Then he summoned two of the centurions and said, Make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea, along with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen by 9 o'clock tonight, and provide mounts for Paul to ride, so that he may be brought safely to Felix the governor. God was using now this commanding officer, who we know now is named Claudius Lysias in verse 26, to safely get Paul to where God wants him to get to. Yes, God uses people, but God's the one that's overseeing it all. God has his eye on Paul. God has his eye on you. And so Claudius Lysias writes this letter to the governor, Felix, and basically explains what is going on. I won't read the letter, it's pretty much a rehash of what we've already read. But look at verse 31 and we'll wrap this up tonight. So the soldiers in accordance with their orders took Paul and brought him to Antipatris during the night. The next day they let the horsemen go on with them and they returned to the barracks. When the horsemen came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked what province he was from. The reason he asked him that is because if Paul would have been from a certain province where there was another governor in charge, he would have just sent him over there and let that guy deal with him. But because he didn't come from a province where there was a governor, he was willing to basically hear his case. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive too. And he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. I want to end with this thought. The words kept under guard literally mean to be watched over or have an, an eye kept on. 
And obviously, from a human perspective, that's true. But the irony here, if you will, is that God always had his eye on Paul. God was always taking care of Paul. God was always watching over Paul, just like God is always watching over us. As you leave tonight, I want you to think about Acts 23.11. Again, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know how you're feeling, but the Lord knows. And just like with Paul, the Lord knows when we need encouragement. The Lord knows when we need reassurance. The Lord knows when we need comforted. And whether he sends someone else into our life to do it or whether he comes himself in some way, either through the ministry of the Holy Spirit or through his word or however God chooses to do it, the Lord wants to remind all of us that he is near, that he is close beside, that he is present, that he is ready to help. And not only does he want us to realize his presence is there with us, but he wants to strengthen us. He's not necessarily going to change our circumstances or take the things away that we're dealing with, but what He will give us is the strength and power to go through it with Him. He wants to fill us with His power. And He wants us to have courage. He doesn't want us to be afraid. He wants us to be confident in Him and in what he's promised. Go in the confidence and courage of the Lord. Go in the presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that he's with you every step of the way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing to us all that Paul was going through at this moment so that even we, thousands of years later, Lord, could be encouraged by His story. God, I pray tonight that maybe even before we go to sleep, as we maybe even take a few minutes to think about Paul sitting there in those barracks with an army around him, all alone, isolated, maybe feeling like a failure, certainly thinking that things didn't go like it probably could have or should have with the council. And yet here you come, Lord, right there that night, to remind him that you are near and to encourage him. God, you want to do the same thing in our lives. And you do the same thing in our lives all the time. I pray that we would allow you to minister to us. And Lord, if it's not you yourself, but you choose another instrument or another person to do it for you, may we allow them to minister to us and encourage us as well. So often as Christians, we, we seek to be the encourager. And that's great. But we also need to grow and mature to a point where we all recognize we all need to be encouraged at times as well. So help us, Lord, to grow to the point where we will allow you and others to encourage us. 
Encourage us, God, as only you can tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, don't forget Sunday's communion. Hope to see you all there. Have a great rest of the week and we'll see you then.